Welcome to the King's Church Podcast. At the King's Church, we exist to see a greater worship of Jesus through declaring and displaying the gospel. You're about to listen to a sermon from our weekly corporate worship gathering. If you want to follow along with the sermon notes, they can be found on our website, kingschurchlkld.com. Last Sunday, feels like a month ago, doesn't it? Maybe it's just been my week, I don't know about yours, but on the back side of Easter here, we're going to be uh, jumping back into our series that we've been walking through entitled The Kingdom of Heaven as uh, we examine the Sermon on the Mount, some of Jesus' most famous teachings in Matthews chapter 5 through 7. And so this week and next, we're going to be examining one of the most famous passages in all the Bible, and that's the Lord's Prayer that Jacob just read for us a moment ago. Uh, The Lord's Prayer is sort of split into two parts. The first half is oriented towards God and heaven and his kingdom, and the second half shifts and is oriented towards our human needs and human relationships. Now, order is really important, by the way. We'll talk about that a little bit today. Uh, But the Lord's Prayer is encouraging us to begin with a heavenly concern before we transition to our own earthly concerns. And that's not because our earthly needs are unimportant. They certainly are important, but they need to be viewed through a proper lens, which is to begin with heaven and then transition to earth. So this morning, we're going to look specifically at the first half of this prayer. Now, I think anytime we talk about prayer, and certainly while we look at the Lord's Prayer, it ought to make us consider our own prayer life for just a moment. So this morning, before we jump into the text, I just want to ask you, how is prayer going for you? What is your prayer life like right now? And when you pray, what do your prayers sound like? What is quick to come out when you go before the Lord? Because I'm guessing, and I'm going out on a pastoral limb here, that you probably struggle with prayer in some way, shape, or form. Amen? Like, I've never met anybody, and if you are this person, I'd love to meet you, who's just real comfortable and happy with the amount that they're praying. That they feel like they've really, you know, a lot of things are hard in the Christian life, but prayer, I've really got that down. Okay, if you are that person, I, re- I need your counsel. So I would like to talk with you afterward if you feel like you're in a sweet spot there. Uh, but I know that I struggle with prayer, and prayer is not easy for us. In fact, it's one of the more difficult disciplines of the Christian life. It's something that takes practice. We need to make a habit of it before it really sticks and becomes something transformational in our lives. But as we think about our struggles with prayer, I think there are some big cultural issues that are contributing to our problems here. I think there's a convergence of factors that play into this. The first of those is that we live in a highly individualistic society today, in 2019. And in that individualistic society, we prize instant gratification and satisfaction. And then layered within all of that reality is the technological age that we live in. Right? As one author has said, we live in a world where devices, right, they satiate our every desire for what he calls easy everywhere. And you know what's not easy everywhere? Prayer. Prayer has never been described as easy everywhere. But what it does is this builds into our lives a liturgy, a pattern of the instantaneous, of getting results right away. And if you don't think that's true, how do you respond when your phone doesn't load something immediately? How do you respond when you get that little exclamation point that your text message has not indeed been sent? Right? Do you handle that calmly when the video won't load? Right, aren't we a people who are quick to just become infuriated with our devices? 
Right? You see what's happening there, though? We're being wired for the instantaneous. We're being wired for this quick, everything comes easy. Right? And the reality is we're plugged into that all day. Oftentimes, from the first moment we wake up to the last moment before we close our eyes and attempt to fall asleep. And all of that leaves us very distracted, doesn't it? It leaves us very distracted. And it leaves us scared to be alone with ourselves, in silence, disconnected from what's going on in the world around us. And if we think all of that is not affecting our prayer life, I think we're fooling ourselves. Right? All of those fight against the whole practice of prayer to begin with. But even if we do pause and pray... Oftentimes, our prayers reflect this individualism, this hurriedness, and this distraction that we so easily are prone to buy into. So today, I want to ask the question, what hope is there for us? What can we do about this reality in our lives? And I think the good news this morning that each and every one of us needs is that Jesus has given us a prayer. Jesus has graciously offered to us a model of prayer, an instruction that we are to pray in this way, which is why we're going to spend the next two weeks looking at this model that Jesus gives us here, because I think we have much to learn from it. The Lord's Prayer, as one commentator has rightly said, stretches from the Father at the beginning to the devil at the end, from heaven to hell, and in between, in six brief petitions, everything important in life. So if we struggle with prayer, I would argue there's probably no better place for us to turn than a prayer that covers everything important in life. So this morning, here's the main idea I think we're going to see in this first half. Jesus gives us a pattern to pray to our Heavenly Father so that His priorities become our desire. Jesus gives us a pattern to pray to our Heavenly Father so that His priorities become our desire. And to see that, I want to ask three questions of our text this morning. Number one, why should we even pray to begin with? Number two, who should we pray to? And then thirdly, what should we pray? So why, who, and what? So it would be fitting now that we take a moment and pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are a people who are in need of you this morning. We're a people who are struggling along our way in prayer and in many other things. Uh, but Lord, we thank you that you are our Father, that you're a gracious God, full of compassion and mercy for us, and that you extend grace even when we don't deserve it. So this morning, as we examine our own lives and our own shortcomings, may we land at that grace. May we run to your throne to find help when we need it. And may you show us, may you instruct us in a fresh way this morning what it means to pray what it means to experience you, what it means to be filled with the Spirit and to pray in ways that maybe make us a little bit uncomfortable, but that ultimately lead us to the good news of the gospel, the good news that the kingdom has come, and the good news that ultimately is all about you, Jesus. So Jesus, may you make yourself known in this time. Open our eyes and our ears and our hearts to see and behold you in your glory and your majesty. May we do that now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So number one, let's ask the question, why should we pray? And to do that, let me set the context just briefly since we've been out of the Sermon on the Mount for a few weeks in honor of Easter. Uh, Jesus begins here in chapter 6 warning against this false or pseudo-righteousness specifically of the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious experts of the day. 
he calls them over and over again hypocritical. And they're hypocritical in this sense. They outwardly do the right things. They check all of the boxes. They would have been viewed as the most righteous, pious, religious people in that culture. But the problem is, internally, it was all selfish. They were all motivated by seeking their own glory. And so the warning here in chapter 6 has been this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before others for the purpose of being seen by them. Right? So he warns in two ways. Don't give in order to gain a reputation. And don't pray in order to gain recognition. Instead, we give and we pray, and all acts of obedience and righteousness in our life are to be an audience of one, to be before our Father in heaven. If we're pursuing a reward from others, that is the totality of the reward. God will not reward us any further. And then here in verse 7, he warns of another false way to pray. So let's turn there in verse 7, if you have your copy of the scriptures. Jesus says, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. That phrase, empty phrases right there, it literally means babbling in the Greek. You know what a babbler is. They're just kind of going on and on and on, not really saying anything, right? Some of you tell stories this way, right? I love you, but you're just on and on, just nothing, can't, can't seem to land it, right? Uh, this is kind of what he's warning against in our prayers, that we think in our babbling, in our many words, that God might actually hear us. It's this mindless repetition over and over again with no substance. Now, this was a common practice among many other religions around this time period. We see instances of this amongst the Gentiles, those who were not in the people of Israel in the Old Testament. So, for example, in 1 Kings 18, we have the false prophets of Baal who are challenged by Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, to pray to their gods to provide a fire from heaven to offer up the sacrifice of bulls. And so here's how these prophets respond in 1 Kings 18. It says, and they took the bull that was given to them and they prepared it. And then look what they did. They called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon saying, oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us over and over and over again from morning until noon. See this in the New Testament, too. In Acts 19, Paul goes into the city of Ephesus. A riot breaks out over the, the gospel, and it says this in chapter 19 of the book of Acts, verse 34. For about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, the god that they worshipped, one of the gods they worshipped in Ephesus. This is what Jesus is getting at. Now, the issue here is not lengthy or long prayers. Okay, there are times where Jesus himself, it says, he prayed all night long. The issue is not with the length of prayers, but rather the attitude and the posture of our hearts as we pray. Right? Because while we might not babble in the way that these pagan prayers sound here, their approach might not be all that different than ours, if we're being honest. Right? Whenever we think something like this, well, if I just pray a lot about something, or if I pray for a really long time, God will have to hear me. Right? If I'm really convincing, if I'm really serious and diligent, then surely God will bless me because of my devotion. Right? He will answer my prayers. Do you see what's at the bottom of that? Right? At the end of the day, that simply is manipulation, isn't it? That simply is manipulation. Just as the false prophets wanted to manipulate their gods into answering their prayers, we too can be guilty of attempting to manipulate God 
to answer what we really want, our vision for the good life, our desires, and just asking God to give his stamp of divine approval upon it. And so Jesus says in verse 8, do not be like them. Do not be like them. Why not? He says, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus says, listen, there is a better way. We do not need to manipulate God because we have a father. We have a father in heaven. He already knows what we need. We don't need to impress him, right? Your prayers don't need to be all flowery and filled with all this beautiful language. They can be real raw and honest. You know why? Talking to our father. Talking to a father who desires to know his children. Right? Children don't need to earn the ear of their father if it's a good father. They already have his ear. And so we have this freedom that God cares for you. He doesn't need to be manipulated. But it does ask, I think it begs this question. If it's true that God already knows what we need before we ask him, then why ask him at all? Right? Maybe you've thought that before. Well, God already knows, so I don't necessarily need to pray in this way since he's a father who already knows what's going on in my life. Well, the problem with this is that it misses what's actually happening when we pray. Right? The problem is that it misses the purpose of prayer. Because when we think this way, we're viewing prayer simply as a passing of information. Right? It's sort of a mere transaction at this point. If you've ever said anything like this, we're falling into this. If we ever feel something along this lines, well, you know, I prayed, and it just, it just didn't work, right? I'm still anxious. I'm still struggling with this friendship that's broken. I've still got this diagnosis, right? This marriage is still really hard, and I don't know what to do with it. I'm still struggling with this besetting sin. So you know what? I guess my prayers just didn't work. You ever thought that before? You ever felt the frustration of that before? Well, brothers and sisters, I want to warn us this morning, if that is our expectation for prayer, then it is never going to, quote unquote, work like that. Because you see what we're saying there is that prayer only works when everything is resolved according to what I think is best. So you know what? That situation didn't resolve itself, so God must not have blessed my prayer. Right? He must not have understood what was happening. Right, everything there is when my needs are met, then prayer works. And again, that is the posture of manipulation. That is the posture of the Gentiles here that Jesus says, do not pray like they are praying. See, instead of simply passing information, instead of having this transactional relationship with God, prayer according to Jesus is something altogether different. Right, you see, prayer, especially in the way Jesus describes here, it puts us in a proper posture before God. And you know what that posture is? It's a posture that allows us to actually experience God. Why should we pray? Because if we do not pray, we will not experience God. To put it another way, prayer bridges the gap between knowing about God and actually knowing God. And you see, there's a massive difference between those two. It's one thing to know things about God, to know facts about him, to even memorize Bible verses related to him, but it's another thing to know God himself. 
Right? A disciple here is not just someone who knows lots of things about God. A disciple knows and experiences God himself, which means this. Prayer is not about getting things from God, but instead prayer is about getting more of God himself. And if we can get our minds around that, if our hearts can be captivated by that, some of those struggles are not going to remain. Because we understand that prayer is not praying to this magic genie in heaven who grants us all of our desires and our visions for our life. But instead, prayer is an opportunity to commune with the God of the universe. And when we commune with the God of the universe, we are changed. We are fundamentally changed every time we get an opportunity to do that. But can we be honest this morning? That's really hard work. That's really hard work. It's not easy. Here's what Tim Keller says. He says, prayer is both conversation and encounter with God. We must know the awe of praising his glory, the intimacy of finding his grace, and the struggle of asking his help, all of which can lead us to know the spiritual reality of his presence. Prayer, then, is both awe and intimacy, struggle and reality. I don't know if your prayer life feels like that at all, that roller coaster at times, like I don't even know what to pray, and then moments where you just feel God's presence. That's the struggle of prayer, but there's something in that struggle that God has for us. There's something in that that is going to grow us as disciples. So this morning, if you're here, and if for whatever reason you've stopped praying, or if you're here and you're like, man, I just really struggle to ever pray, I think this should be for us a sort of check engine light on our faith, right? Something is going on there that tells you something about your relationship with the Lord. If we are never getting to a posture of prayer, it's revealing something about our own hearts and posture before God. It could be something like self-sufficiency. You just think you've got it under control, right? It could be forgetfulness. You're distracted by the things of this world. It could simply be pride. It could be confusion and uncertainty about who God is or who we are. It could be a comfort issue. Prayer is uncomfortable, right? Whatever it is, I can't answer that for you. I think we should consider what's going on there, like what's going on within our heart if we're not praying. But here's the good news. Here's the good news, because I know there's so much guilt around prayer that can develop there. To pray in the way that Jesus is going to tell us to pray is a reminder that God's not angry with you. He's not up there, arms figuratively crossed, just kind of like, okay, now now they're going to pray. It's not God's posture towards us. No, God, as we're going to see, is our Father. He's our Father, and that's where we need to go next. Who should we pray to? Who should we pray to? Look how Jesus begins his prayer. He says, pray then like this. He says, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. I don't want us to rush past that too quickly. He says, our Father in heaven. You see, praying to our Father should set the tone for the rest of our prayer. Because here's the thing, and I'm guessing you feel this like I do. So often my prayers just end up being like running updates about what's going on in my life. Have you ever felt that before? Like whatever's going on in my life and whatever's on my mind at that time, I'm like, I'm like okay, God, boom, here's everything that's happening, right? And we just kind of word vomit all that's happening in our lives and kind of aim that upward towards God, right? If we're eating dinner, if you're anything like me, I just, man, I love a good meal, so if we give the obligatory, like, thanks for this food, but we need to get on to the real course, right? 
Currently, my most embarrassing prayers were my kids' bedtime. God, thank you for Caleb. He's wonderful. May he sleep through the night in this bed. May he not get up out of this bed. All in your name, right? Amen. Confession time up here, right? But that's sometimes our prayers sound something like that. I know I'm not alone, right? So what's happening is we just kind of, we, we go to God and we say, all right, here's what's happening right now. Here's my struggles. Here's the moment right in front of me, what I'm about to experience. Here's my life plan, right? And God, I need you to help me carry this out. I need you to give your divine blessing and approval to this, and then I'll be really grateful for it. Right? Isn't that how we pray so often? But yet the instruction here in the Lord's Prayer is to something different. Right? Jesus is saying, before we jump in with our concerns, before we come with all of our per- perceived needs, whether they're important or unimportant, which, by the way, we will get there. God cares about those things. We're going to pray about our daily bread next week. Right? There's things that we do need and God needs to help us with. But before we jump in, Jesus says, don't forget who you are talking to. Don't forget who you are talking to. The prayer will move to our needs, but up top, Jesus is inviting us to almost hit the reset button for a moment. When you pause and pray, start your prayers with the reminder of who God is. See, this, for us in our cultural moment and all that I've described here so far, our desire for instant gratification, for expediency, for everything to be easy everywhere, this is an invitation to slow down. This is an invitation to simply slow down before we jump in with all of our needs to step out of the immediacy of the next thing that's right in front of us. We pause and we remember who we are praying to. You see, biblical prayers, whether it be here or if you just read through the book of Psalms, right? they always include a remembrance of the character and nature of God. They remember God's past faithfulness his promises to his people. And we must start our prayers that way. We must start our prayers that way. It sets the expectation for all that comes underneath it. It helps us to rightly see what's going on in our lives. You see, by beginning our prayer by addressing our Father, it helps us remember two things immediately. First, that God is personal. You see, a good father is someone who's actively involved in the life of his children. He's not distant and far off. A good father will get down on the floor and play with his kids. He'll wrestle with them. They'll read the same book over and over again. Mine right now is about a duck and a peep, right? Yeah. Uh, Is there a good father is there to comfort his kids when they need it? Right? God, as our father, is personal. That's the beauty of praying through Christ. We have access to God in that way. But we need to acknowledge for a moment that all of us have varied experiences with our earthly fathers. And I know some of you here have scars and wounds. Some of you have poor or non-existent relationships with your earthly fathers. So praying this way might be a challenge. Praying this way might cause frustration. It might cause heartache. It might cause confusion. Well, can I encourage you for a moment with the good news of the gospel? Right, whatever sense of loss or frustration or hurt you may or may not feel with your earthly father. God is a perfect father. Your frustration, if this is you, your frustration with your earthly father is actually trying to draw you up to see there is a good father. There is a perfect father. 
And God does not just relate to us as father in some vague sense. He's not just like the father of all, really vaguely. No, the gospel tells us this, that when we put our faith in Jesus, we have been adopted into the family. You know how adoption works, right? You were chosen. God set his eyes upon you. He loved you and he brought you into his family. It says now that we are co-heirs with Christ. You know what that means? That when God views us, he views us in the same way he views his son, Jesus. That is the father we pray to. And doesn't that just invite you to pray? Doesn't that invite you to have a conversation with your father, the one who would love you in that way, would go to that extent to bring you into his family, his sons and daughters of God. So God is personal, number one. But secondly, God is also powerful. It's our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, which is more than just the dwelling place of God. It represents his sovereignty. It represents his authority over all things, that he is the creator and sustainer of all. He is appealing, and we are appealing to a God who is all-powerful, who is all-knowing, which means we can pray big prayers. We can pray big things. We can ask for him to move in ways that would defy explanation. You remember when you were a kid and the stuff that your parents did just amazed you, right? That's, that's our relationship with our father. He can do things above and beyond what we would ever expect or imagine. So we are praying to a God who can act. We're praying to a God who is powerful. And we need both, by the way. We need a God who is near. We need a God who hears us, a God who can provide comfort for us. But we also need a God who can act. We don't just need a buddy, right? If you need somebody to just put your arm around you, I'm happy to do that. Right? But we need a God who can act, who can move. And so our Father in heaven reminds us that we are praying to a powerful God. So... Praying to our Father is an opportunity to check ourselves right up top in our prayer. Are we praying to our Heavenly Father who knows our needs? Are we viewing this prayer as an opportunity to commune with the God of the universe who relates to us as our Father? Or are we essentially just praying to ourselves or to some cosmic genie who will grant all of our wishes? Jesus says, slow down. Remember, you are praying to your Father. If you are struggling with prayer this morning, might I suggest just sit down and think about your Father. Pray to your Father who is in heaven. Worship him in that moment. I think you'll be surprised how easy the rest of it comes. When we get wrapped up in who God is, his character and nature, his movement towards us, his faithfulness, his promises, when we remind ourselves that that is true of God, the rest of the prayer is going to come from there. So, why should we pray? It's an experience with God. It's not just knowing things about God, but knowing God himself. Who should we pray to? Our Father. We pray to our Father who is personal, but also powerful. But then lastly, the magic question, right, is what then should we pray? And that's where Jesus launches into. He gives a series of six petitions here. Or requests. So we'll look at the first three this week and the last three next week. So pick it up in verse 9 with me. He says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So let's look through each 
of those phrases. Number one, hallowed be your name. This is not exactly a phrase that we use a lot anymore, right? So you might actually be wondering, what does hallowed mean? Hallowed means this. It means, God, make your name holy. Sanctify your name. May all that you are and all that you've done be worshipped. Now, this can be a weird request because, after all, isn't God's name already holy, right? Isn't he already sanctified in all times and in all places? Well, of course he is, but this is where that experiential component of prayer comes in, right? This is a request that this would be true of our own lives because if you and I are honest, we have not treated God's name as if it was holy at all times, Right? There are moments where we take advantage of that. There are moments where we do not honor him as actually being God. So the prayer begins, God, make your name holy, beginning with me. May this be true of my life. And then from my life, may this spill out into all of creation. God, may you be known and may you be worshipped and may you be magnified. This petition is first for a reason. We pray, hallowed be your name, because no matter what circumstantially might be going on in our lives, whatever circumstantially might be going on in this broken and fallen world that is not the way it's supposed to be, if we are God's people, our greatest desire, above and beyond all those circumstances, is that God is worshipped, is that God is magnified, that his holiness, which is the hope for the world, might be experienced more and more. That's why we pray first, hallowed be your name. It rightly puts God as enthroned on the seat of our hearts first and foremost, and then as king over all. And again, we see both the personal and the powerful nature of God here, don't we? Hallowed be your name. God is uniquely holy and high above us, but it's his name that is holy. You know what a name is? It makes you accessible. When you introduce yourself to someone, if you're doing it properly, you're introducing them first with your name, right? Hi, my name is fill in the blank. Your name makes you accessible, right? And your name stands in for your person. So when we pray, make your name holy. We're not just saying, you know, may people say the name Christ or Lord or Jesus or Heavenly Father. That represents all of who God is. Just like if you're looking for someone in a crowd and I yell out, Joseph, right? I'm not just looking for the label Joseph, I'm looking for the person Joseph. In the same way, God, make your person known more and more to me and to the world around us. Hallowed be your name. But secondly, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. I, this is a big prayer. When we talk about asking big prayers, this is the biggest of them. God, your kingdom come. But before we can pray that, we probably need to know what the kingdom is, right? What are we praying would come? Well, most simply, the kingdom is where Jesus is king. The kingdom is where Jesus is king, where his rule and his reign are experienced. But there's always tension here. Because in one sense, this is true of the whole universe right now, isn't it? Jesus, seated at the right hand of the Father, rules and reigns over all things. But in another sense... It's certainly not realized by all in this moment. This is the already but not yet dynamic of the kingdom. Let me give you an analogy. So college graduation just happened this weekend, right? 
So what happens at graduation is there's a gap of time. You've completed all of the coursework, but you've yet to walk across that stage in great victory, shake someone's hand you've never met before, and grab that diploma, right? There's a gap of time there. You've already completed the coursework, but you're waiting for its full and final declaration on that piece of paper. Well, that's kind of how the kingdom of God works. In one sense, it's already here. The work has already been done. Jesus came and he declared the kingdom of God is at hand. It spirals forward to his perfect life, his death in our place, his resurrection three days later. All of that ushers in the kingdom, but we don't yet experience it in its fullness because we still struggle with sin. There's still death and decay, and this world struggles with things that are not the way they're supposed to be. So we are still awaiting it to come in its fullness. And so until that day comes, you know how we're to pray? Make it come, God. May your kingdom come. May that day arrive. And until that day arrives, here's how the kingdom is felt right now. I love this description from Steve Timmis. He says, the kingdom of God is where the Father's rule is exercised through the Son in the power of the Spirit, so that it is willingly obeyed, gloriously displayed, and happily enjoyed among his people in the world. That last line is beautiful. That's the church, by the way. That, that's us. Okay, let me read that again. So that it is willingly obeyed, gloriously displayed, and happily enjoyed among his people in his world. When we pray like this, it's a drawing us out of that individualistic lens that we tend to view our faith through. Right? Too often our understanding of Christianity or even our evangelism in Christianity looks something like this. Hey, listen, God loves you. There's an invitation to turn from your sin, to put your faith in him. Right now you have this love relationship with God. You are blessed and forgiven. And then God hands you a one-way ticket to heaven. And then when you die, we're safe. Right? And when we get to heaven, everything and everyone that we know and love will be there and we'll just live happily ever after. Now, there are some truths to that, but that's short-sighted to what the kingdom of God is doing. Right? The kingdom of God is so much bigger than just me and Jesus, I'm good, salvation. The kingdom of God is the commitment of God seen in the gospel to set all things right that have gone wrong. Right, consider what N.T. Wright says. He says, Jesus' first followers didn't think for a moment that the kingdom meant simply some new religious advice, an improved spirituality, a better code of morals, or a freshly crafted theology. They held to a stronger and more dangerous claim. They believed that in the unique life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the whole cosmos had turned the corner from darkness to light. The kingdom was indeed here, Though it differed radically from what they had imagined, we are praying, as Jesus was praying and acting, for the redemption of the world, for the radical defeat and uprooting of evil, and for heaven and earth to be married at last, and for God to be all in all. Your kingdom come is praying that that would be true, that God would come back and set right all that has gone wrong. And then we get to participate in that. This means that we're not simply hitting the eject button, by the way, on what's happening right in front of us. This is not a lofty prayer that just takes us above the earth and separates us from all the things going on here. No, instead, focusing on the coming kingdom of God allows us to rightly live in the present. 
Focusing on the realities of that coming kingdom allows us to rightly live in the present. And we do that together as an outpost and an embassy of that coming kingdom. Thirdly, Jesus says, first, hallowed be your name. Secondly, your kingdom come. And then thirdly, your will be done. If your kingdom come is a big prayer, then your will be done is often a very hard prayer. This is a hard prayer. What we are praying in this moment is that, God, I am submitting all of my desires, all of my needs, all of my wants, all the things going on in my life to you. I'm trusting you to do what is best. But how in the world do we get to that level of trust? Have you ever prayed something that felt totally within God's will and you didn't get the answer you wanted? You ever prayed something and the answer came back as something different than what we expected? Haven't we all prayed that? So how can we say, your will be done? Right? How can we trust God in this way? Well, the only way to trust God in this way is to see how Jesus prayed this very same prayer. Right? You see, Jesus is not asking us to pray something. He's not asking us to do something that he himself has not prayed and he himself has not already done. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is wrestling with his impending trial and crucifixion. And he prays, and he prays three times the same thing to the point of sweating blood, according to Luke. He prays this, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. There's the prayer right there, isn't it? Jesus is saying, this is my desire, but nevertheless, your will be done. But we know what happens, don't we? The cup does not pass. Jesus drinks it, and he drinks it in full. Now, here's the thing. Jesus is the only human who deserves to have all of his prayers answered, isn't he? He lived perfectly righteous. He sought the Father's will. Never once sinned, never once strayed, stayed true to the mission, He deserves to have his prayer answered, but yet in this moment, his prayer is not answered in the way he might have hoped. But do you notice what he still did? He still trusted his father. He still prayed, your will be done. Listen, if we're to get to this place, brothers and sisters, we have to grasp the good news of the gospel. Here's the gospel right here. Don't miss this. God treats Jesus as we deserved so that he might treat us as Jesus deserved. That's the gospel. We see that in this prayer, right? Jesus deserves to have his prayers answered. We as sinful people who have turned away from God do not. But the great exchange of the gospel is that Jesus is treated as we deserve to be treated and we are treated as Jesus deserves to be treated. Which means this, if you're struggling with can I trust God, we look to Christ. We look to the one who bought that for us the one who willfully laid down his life, the one who prayed, your will be done, even though I'm uncertain about this in this moment. We look to him to know that God is not against us. God is not evil up in heaven trying to spite us. He's not against us. He is for us in the most profound way. But in that being for us, we might not always understand it. We might not get the answers we want. Sometimes there's silence. But can I encourage you with this? If you're in Christ and you are praying to your Father, there's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. There's no such thing as an unanswered prayer. 
which might not be the answer we like, but we trust that through Christ, God is working out these things for our good, that his glory is going to be seen, and that we don't have to have all the neat, tidy answers around that. But we trust your will be done. This is not a shrug of the shoulders, by the way. Sometimes we offer this up as, okay, well, here's what I want, God, but you know what? At the end of the day, your, your will be done. That's not what this prayer is. This is, a, this is a battle cry. This is a prayer for our own hearts to say, God, this is what I desire, and I'm fighting with all that is in me to see the good news of the gospel in Jesus and to trust that you are good and to trust that your will is the safest place I could ever be, even if I don't understand that in this moment. And in all of this, we pray that his name would be made holy, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. See the bridge there? You see the experience of God that we get to have in prayer? We pray that these would not be distant realities, that these would not just be facts that we know about God, but that we would know these things to be true about God personally and experientially. Right? We pray that his character and nature, his rule and reign, his will and his name would invade our world and our hearts. And that's why, as we conclude here this morning, as we pray in this way, it's not that we're changing God's mind in some way, shape, or form. No, when we pray in this way, you know who's changed? We are changed. And we are changed more into the image of Christ. We are changed more into what is truly true about the world around us when we can't even see it. God's name, God's kingdom, God's will is what's really real. It's what's really happening. And prayer helps us to tap into that. Consider what Eugene Peterson says. He says, praying most often doesn't get us what we want, but what God wants. Something quite at variance with what we conceive to be in our best interests. The task is not to get God to do something I think needs to be done, but to become aware of what God is doing so I can participate in it. That, brothers and sisters, is the invitation of the Lord's Prayer, and that's the invitation for us every time we pray. Pray Prayer changes us because it makes us desire the very things we're praying about. And the Lord's Prayer tells us that God's priorities can truly become our desires as we pray in this way. So, brothers and sisters, may we pray that his name be holy, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done. And that in all of this, we would look to Christ, our brother and our mediator, who on our behalf is praying to the Father for us. We get to participate in that. What a privilege. Let's pray.